You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here. Tonight on City Lights Live, we are delighted to be celebrating new books from Emily Lee Luan and Brandon Shimoda. Tonight's event is being brought to you by City Lights in conjunction with our friends at Night Boat Books, a wonderful indie press which continues to produce poetic works of the highest order. Before we begin, I would like to remind everyone, as always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatishaloni peoples. I'd like to take this moment at the outset to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Brandon Shimoda is no stranger to City Lights. We've had the great pleasure of publishing his memoir, The Grave on the Wall, winner of the 2020 Penn Open Book Award. Brandon is a Yonsei poet and writer and author of eight books of poetry and prose. His published works include The Desert from Song Cave, also The Evening Oracle from Letter Machine Editions, which received the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America. He is also the curator of the Hiroshima Library, which is a reading room and collection of books on the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He teaches at Colorado College. Tonight, we're happy to be celebrating the publication of his latest book, Hydra Medusa, from Nightboat Books. Joining Brandon in reading and conversation is Emily Lee Luan, someone whose work has caught our interest here at City Lights, and we've been watching for a while now. She is celebrating the publication of her own new book. It's her debut poetry collection. It's titled Return. It is also published by the ever-groovy Nightboat. A former Margins Fellow at the Asian American Writers Workshop, Emily is the author of I Watched the Bows, selected for a Poetry Society of America Chapbook Fellowship. She makes her home in New York City. As mentioned, both Emily and Brandon will be reading from their work and then engaging in conversation. We'll uh, leave a little time at the end of the evening for you all to ask questions. So please post your comments and questions in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard. Also want to remind you that we'll be selling books tonight. Uh, we'll be posting links in that same chat function with which you may purchase copies from both of them. And uh, without much further ado, it is a great pleasure to welcome Emily Lee Luan and Brandon Shimoda. Welcome to City Lights. I think you need to unmute. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I think Emily's reading first, right? I'm going to disappear. <laughs> uh, thanks everybody for being here. Um, I'm so deeply excited and honored to be reading with Brandon um, Shimoda. Brandon's work I've admired for a very long time um, and also just um, feel like his work and really generous scholarship is, has been really important to a lot of um, poets I know and and Thank you, Brandon. Really excited um, to be celebrating your book. I swam in a cold lake and watched my body convulse on shore. My body, a flight attendant's body, one of the ones on a Chinese airline. I watched them last time I was on an international flight their skinny arms and flat chests, their clean scents 
a purpose. I had an aisle seat and they bumped my elbow with the beverage cart, said sorry to me in two languages, both of them mine. I thought I could be a flight attendant and in another life I might've been. My cousin is a flight attendant on Eva Air. My other cousin born three days before me who wants to be a model tried to be a flight attendant instead, but she didn't get it, said there was too much memorization and she couldn't remember everything. I secretly know I'd be a great flight attendant. I could discreetly close the overhead bins, twist my hair back, tie the service apron on, hand out hot towels, blink my eyes big, say, tea, tea, cha, cha, all the way down the aisle. When offering small sandwiches, I might stare out of one of the windows, imagine the ocean blue. Or say when cleaning up a toddler's vomit, I might yearn for a less solitary life. But otherwise, loneliness might be okay when surrounded by other flight attendants in the sky. My body a body made pretending to bodies in flight. I breathe in the air of neither here nor there. I'd remember everything about my lives on earth. From what are you separated? My chiropractor tells me, your sternum is shining, meaning that the small bones in my chest are rotating, overlapping, and moving away from one another, a snared zipper. He places the pads of his fingers beneath my collarbone, willing them. I should love the revolution, but the revolution killed my grandfather's father. He was just a rich man who smoked opium, read the stars, and arranged marriages, they say, who was brought to his knees by his own village. His sister was paraded through town with a wooden sign around her neck. She knelt in the center for hours. The sign was hung by a metal wire. It slowly sank until her skin parted and bared the bone in the back of her neck. Oh, I love you, Ling Ling, the man on the street says to me. I've said it before, I don't know where I am. And this next poem is one um, of a few reversible poems um, in the collection. Um, which are adapted from a uh, classical Chinese form, um, poetic form, where you can read the poems forward and backward. Um, and in this particular form, um, the words are, um, the characters are arranged in a circle. And so you can start from any point in the circle and read forward um, and also backward. So that's my, um, this is my kind of take on that form in English. She's the only one who hears me sing. 
She's the only one who hears me sing. The only one who hears me singing, she. Only one who hears my song. One hears me sing, no, she's the only. Who, me, I'm my only. Hear me sing her only song. I sing and there's my only hearing. Sing her to only. Sing me into hearing I who is my only. Hearing while my only's, she sings. Who's hearing ones to singing? One, the only one, only my only, sing me. The she who sings, hearing all the way to one. She's singing. In it, I hear my only. Um, in reading um, Brandon's book, Hydra Medusa, I've been thinking a lot about the kind of in-between space between life and, and death. And so I thought I would read the one longer poem um, I have in the collection that's kind of, I feel like exists in that space. Um, it has a Chinese, each section um, has a Chinese title. Um, the first version of that title uh, is translates roughly to, uh, to what place do souls separated from bodies disappear? And that title in reverse um, translates to the place where vanished souls have gone, where is it? And that's from a poem um, by Cho Jun. I bring my grandfather to a restaurant on 8th. It's a hole-in-the-wall kind of joint, a pizza place with candlelight. I can't eat anything here, I tell him as we walk through the wall and into the hole. I'm gluten and lactose intolerant now. You can't eat even Shandong's famous beef noodle soup, he asks. No, not even, I say. That's okay, I can't eat either. I'm dead, he replies, and ducks into the bricked darkness. My grandfather brings me to the old family well. It's just a cylinder of stones and a yellow field, and the sky is gray. We are in no country. My mother used to carry water from this well, he says. We stand around it, but we don't peer in. And there is a silence, like watching the ocean fold from behind glass between us. Sometimes it feels like different phases of the same sadness, I finally say. And we draw crescents around the rim of the well with our eyes. My grandfather and I eat a steamed trout. We start with the meat on one side of the bone. When we finish, we flip the fish together. My chopsticks on the tail, his wedge in the hollow beneath its jaw. As we eat, moving towards the head, 
Our language unhinges. His accent grows northern, bright on the second syllable. Mine dissolves, mouth gone to water. By the time I empty the tender meat of a cheek, my grandfather is tapping rhythms for me with his chopsticks against the spine of the fish. I offer him a fish eye. Together, we chew them to seed. Each of our eyes, in their dead way, swivels and blinks to each other from our stomachs. I stand with my grandfather on Uzhi Mountain. He holds up his outstretched hand. Uzhi, he says, five fingers so that I can understand. We look beyond the clouds shrouding the mountain past Shunainai's stone grave. Are you okay with being here forever, I ask? I'm not sure I have a choice, he replies and grasps all 10 of his fingers together. My grandfather and I board the train down the coast. We have our fanchuan, our soy milk. I sit beside a boy my age and we both read books. I imagine we're young lovers in a Taiwanese film drawing open the curtain and looking out together when the ocean comes. I can see the top of my grandfather's baseball cap a few rows ahead of me. Sometimes he disappears, slouching down to sip the soy milk. We enter dark tunnels in the crowded mountains and until I see the white sky, I fear we will never surface. When I walk down the aisle to his row, my grandfather is gone. A wad of plastic wrap and an empty milk box. From the train, the ocean, and as we ride, the farther from it. This is gonna be my last poem. Um, it's written after Khalil Gibran's poem of the same name. When my sorrow was born. When my sorrow was born, I held it, a dark pearl spit from its shell. And I remembered the salt that had rounded it centuries ago, before I even had a mouth. And my sorrow was unafraid, and it gave me back my bravery and my anger, walked me to the tossing water and proclaimed the water mine. My sorrow held me and did not tell me not to cry, and the girls about me watched our sweet days together with longing, for they too wanted to be held by something with fingers as slender and delicate as my sorrows fingers that tapped their temples and had them see how they had been wronged. And those who longed for my sorrow would never have a sorrow like mine. I knew that, for my sorrow had a forest black mane like mine. 
and my sorrow let me say, I, I, mine. And my sorrow sat with me on the fire escape all that breathing winter, and my sorrow would not let me into the water. And my sorrow deveined shrimp and patterned them on my plate, brought me a wide bowl brimming with broth. And we ate fried eggs with chopsticks. We waited for my joy to come. Thank you. I want to hear more. That was so fast. It was so great. Um, one of my favorite poems, well, actually the poems you read of, that feature um, your grandfather, I love. Among my favorite grandfather poems, but also Emily mentioned these reversible poems. This is, this is one of the poems in the book. I'm assuming it's a reversible poem, but it's also... I mean, even more than that, I don't know what additional words you could assign to the what this particular poem is doing. You know, I'm not actually sure what the poem is doing either, but um, yeah, I think it is a reversible poem of, of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. It goes in circles. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe I'll have to ask you about that later because it's it's um, transfixing, to say the least. Uh, it's such an honor to read with you. I'm so happy that we're publishing books together with Nightboat um, in the same year. That's exciting. I This is the third time I've read from um, my new book, Hydra Medusa. The second time I read from it, I started crying and I had to stop reading. Um, it, it was a particular day. It's not something I, I, I do. I don't know if I've ever done that before, but I'm going to try not to do that right now um i have my reading mapped out with these sticking notes and a little chaotic so i apologize if i get a little mixed up um i'm just going to read straight through my reading i'm not going to read any titles many of the pieces in in this book don't have titles anyway but this is just going to be one sustained thing i'll see how it goes thank you so much city lights I had a dream last night that a rainbow was burning. I had a dream last night that the war fit on the tip of a finger. I had a dream last night that a scream did not need a hill to gather speed to reach the people. I had a dream last night that a border wall was built. Carved into the wall were millions of alcoves. In the center of each was a bright red candied apple. The wall was a mausoleum, part altar, part orchard. A man sat beneath a tree. The tree was dry, its leaves hammered teeth. The shadows too were dry and hot. The sun connected directly. The entire wash looked like it had served fire seasons ago. The man sitting between black roots was lost or looking to lose what was following him to the desiccated end of an artery. 
The man had been walking two days, five days, was stuck to the ground, had a toothbrush in his pocket, hung his teeth on a limb, the toothbrush in its packaging. As the bus ascended the mountain and the surveillance apparatus thickened, I felt the eager learning of children in my teeth and touched my teeth. Nails had been driven through my teeth and gums in four places, long nails, long enough to hold a house together. The mountain was, except for mounted cameras, drones over the high claustrophobic horizon and small black bushes bare. We were passing through what Westerners believed was the epicenter of death. We were headed toward it, returning to it, the West, the most ritually recursive flame in paintings of naked figures, turning a massive wheel that grinds and motivates the earth to sacrifice its organs for the wholesale suffering of the people, bearded and asleep in the form of bubble-like angels. I pulled the nails out. I could taste the steel, the occasional insect, shiny object, clandestine piece of surveillance equipment, wing of a weaponized mosquito. The landscape was meant to be dreaded. I could imagine being a child in it, walking with my siblings, taking a break in the lee of a bush, thinking about our aunt's massive pots, long scarves of ocean. The children arrive at night is one of several meanings of the desert. The children arrive without knowing. They are the authorities, measure it that way, to mimic the disorientation the mind feels, shocked to discover the world has been replaced with no original, wide, the gate slides. Three men stood on a hill. They had been walking three days, two days before that, months before that. The hill was a short promontory on which white moons and animals, totems of succor and attraction, inscribed mirages of these exact men on every cactus between the hill and a room with AC. Are we in Kentucky? They asked. How many borders do we have to cross? I had a dream last night that an island folded in half. I called an old woman on the phone. You know the island you love? I said, it folded in half. The line went silent. I took my glasses off, placed them on a rock, slid into the water. The folded island was covered in small orange flowers, monkey flowers. Two utility poles had fallen over. The power lines were inches from the water. I'm going to be electrocuted, I thought. And the moment I thought it, the sun set. I did not have my glasses. My night vision is terrible. Only the power lines and the monkey flowers were visible. I panicked and started swimming towards the rock where I put my glasses, but I could not find it because I could not see it. The veins in my body were lightning. A woman had a clear plastic tube in her left arm, her vein. She needed it removed. She pulled it out a few inches to show me. It was rooted to her shoulder. 
We stood in the doorway of a crowded gymnasium. No one stopped to acknowledge her. The crowd's indifference was threatening her stigma. There were many of her, or one of many, with similar needs that could have been addressed in minutes. But the oversaturation was taken for granted. Then where would the women go? I told the women I could help her. Let me find someone to help me help her. It was the day after tomorrow. Everyone gathered in the gymnasium with lighter, more mesh-like clothing. Everyone's motion, that of people waiting for a ceremony to, to begin. A rally with roses, no landscape, fireworks turning white, embers draining, and the long, drawn sleep of people who lump their head against thigh-like bark for the association of warmth against 27 degrees in the desert January. I had a dream last night that I met a woman made of bricks. She took herself apart brick by brick and became a pile of bricks. I had a dream last night that a man gave a performance in which he visibly aged. When the performance began, he was young. By the end, he was old. The stage was large. The space for the auditorium was small, no seats. The man walked to the foot of the stage and said in a loud voice, my house. A shrine burned down and was replaced with a shrine, identical but empty. Photographs of the dead once grimaced from the walls and the aura of a tree in the shape of smoke, keeping, keeping cool and clay, the dead, a perfect instrument. I approached the altar colorful with photographs of people I did not know, would never, but now I had seen them, as real to me as people I talk to but do not see, are alive, loved, deserve to be visited, strangers go all over the rainbow, never settle, do not situate before the gaze of one particular stranger. The dead were not gazing, they wanted it to be over, their reflection to be stronger, like a lunar sound, materializing a hymn of thanksgiving. To the missing, living, the living are late, always clutching their face. What a place, faces, immunizations. I had a dream last night that death was not called death. It was called expectoration. Upon expectoration, a mask hard made of something like wood grows over our face and our face turns to liquid. The liquid cast out, cascades down our body. I had a dream last night that lispectorate was a word, a verb meaning cough up or spit out, phlegm, sarcasm, laughter, disdain, in the manner of Clarice Lispector. I had a dream last night that I was in a cult. Cult life consisted of sitting at long cafeteria tables in the ruins of a Japanese-American concentration camp and applying lines of whiteout to eight and a half by 11 sheets of sandpaper, straight lines, vertical. I could not get the whiteout to cooperate. My lines were uneven. They wandered and bled. I was given demerits, then handcuffed and escorted to the edge of the camp. The bookstore was in the woods. A creek was filled with leaves. Reflections were not trustworthy, but still accurate, medicinal, predictive. The proprietor was Japanese in his 70s. The bookstore was his house. The bookstore did not end. 
I was in his living room looking at his family photos. I was in one, a baby, a glass menagerie, spies, I thought. I remember one book, stories set in Shimoda. The inn was called Shimoda. The baby was not me. Babies live in craters, covered in grass, houses buried up to the second stories, bomb shelters. The man sat at a large drafting table. What is your name? I asked. He wrote it in cloud-like letters, Da Nagasaki, Nagasaki-da. I wrote my name next to his, Da Shimo, Shimoda. The woods were filled with throats, no clearing, no one read, books disintegrating at the base of trees, emitting the smoke of spores to see. Can I live here? When I get to the end of the hallway and enter the cafeteria, I will lose myself. I will still be loud to myself. I will not be following anybody. I will be once again nameless, insignificant, without fingerprints. I had a dream last night that I wrote a book about my grandfather. Here's the first sentence of that book, the first paragraph of that book. My grandfather had one memory of his childhood in Hiroshima washing the feet of his grandfather's corpse. He was six or five or four. He stood in the doorway of the room where his grandfather's corpse had been prepared. His grandfather, covered in a white towel and lying on a thin futon in the middle of the room, looked like he was sleeping. There was a sponge and a large white bowl of lucid water and a robe tightly folded in the corner. My grandfather's mother and three older brothers nodded at him to enter. He looks like he is dreaming. Upset with the book, my grandfather attacked me. He had the fortification and the force of all our dead behind him. And they too were upset with the book I had written. So his attack was their attack. I should have given into it because if their attack was sincere, and if it satisfied the extent of their being upset, then I would soon be joining them and become part of that force. And yet, I tried to escape. I ran into a building. People were eating at long cafeteria tables. My grandfather, catching up to me, started pushing the tables with the people still sitting at them. He started pushing the tables into me. I laid down on the floor, hoping the tables would pass over. I had in my hands, with its spine against my neck, the book I had written about him. And this is the final paragraph. I had a dream last night that I took my daughter Yumi to visit her great-grandfather's grave. When we got there, his grave was gone and had been replaced with a white obelisk. Yumi sat down and, as if knowing exactly how to behave in front of it, closed her eyes. Inscribed on the obelisk were the words, Hydra Medusa. Thank you. That was amazing. Moment of silence for both for both of us. <laughs> it's always ridiculous to jump from reading right into talking, but um, yeah. I actually have questions for you. I have questions for you. And I guess if people have questions for us or uh, for anyone, um, they're welcome. Um, can I ask you a question first? Sure. So 
one of the things you wrote in your acknowledgments and just to bring family back into this um at the very end of your your dedication you dedicate your book to your family and in particular to your mother and if i'm just going to read what you wrote about your parents i think it's really beautiful and then i have questions about it so this is the very very end of the book before we read your bio it says to my mother whose oceanic calligraphy appears on the cover of and throughout this book for raising me in a world rich with colors, textures, and shapes. And to my father, the narrator of generations of stories, I write in the wake of your words. Um, it's so beautiful and just oceanic and in the wake. And I, this is a really simple question, but I'm just wondering, um, based on those things that you mentioned of your parents, what what are some ways that they influenced this particular writing, this particular book? Yeah, um, I've never been asked about my acknowledgments before, so that's <laughs> very cool. Um, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, as I mentioned in the acknowledgments, my my mother's calligraphy is on the cover of the book, and it appears um, on like the the inside pages and also in the in the closing. Um, and so, yeah, she has a really intimate relationship to um, Chinese characters um, and the kind of just like beauty of the shapes of the characters and the motion that you move through the characters with. And um, so a lot of the poems are kind of interested in that like, like process of writing a character. Um, or what it's what it's like to encounter a Chinese character um, on the page, um, and yeah, also I don't know. Growing up, my father just like told us so many stories. He's uh, would just like make shit up, like he would make uh, really crazy random stories. He would like retell, he like retold us parts of the Bible, um, and also a lot of the book is formulated around his telling of like certain family histories to mm -hmm. me. And, um, you know, kind of my negotiation with those stories in, you know, what I've been told versus going back and, you know, having him rehash stories to me and like seeing that I've remembered them incorrectly or also doing research just on the kind of the actual history of, of those times and um, especially the migration from uh, that my paternal grand grandparents did from China to Taiwan, uh, doing a lot of research into that and kind of just, you know, seeing where politically I like disagree or agree with some of the histories and also, um, yeah, seeing how a lot of also what I was told was maybe factually incorrect. And um, yeah, so I think the book kind of flows out of that kind of place of intersections between all those different stories and and timelines and histories yeah yeah at, at what point did you did you know or realize that your father was making up stories were, were you aware of that pretty early on um well there were some stories that he told that were like canonical like the monkey king you know um, but he would kind of retell it in his own way. But I, I think I specifically remember him telling me the story of Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, 
what like the various parts of like him of Jesus being put on the cross and I remember specifically I was very young but I remember being like that sounds like something I've heard before but like totally detached from you know the stories of the Bible that I maybe heard in school or through other kids um and I think I remember kind of now I like think I was poking a hole in, in what he was doing or seeing that he was um kind of revising in his own way yeah that's crazy <laughs> yeah poking a hole in is really interesting um I have a question that kind of follows this or thinking about memory for you um I'm going to read just a little quote from one of the longer essays in the book. Mm. So you write, writing about incarceration, reciting its history, runs a risk of letting it pass into the biblical realm, there's the Bible again, um, where the suffering of injustice becomes allegorical, therefore instructive assuaging future suffering with the moral of survival. Um, and you kind of go on to talk about um, the now, um, what, what you call um, who we are constantly failing to become. So kind of curious to hear you talk a little bit about just that quote, but also Kind of what your relationship is to writing about the past um and how you kind of see it running up against writing about the future so yeah that's huge um what well one thing that it's very easy for me to forget about what i wrote so the sentence you just read i yeah i mean i remember writing i remember it because we you know um we went through the book so many times but um one of the things it, it reminds me of is writing while angry and i mean this is I, i'm going to try to answer your question but it just realized um how much of what i've written or what parts of what i've written were written while angry and that that's actually a question i had for you about anger i have had a question about anger but um yeah i think that I think what I wrote about either writing about or telling the story of Japanese American incarceration or even telling it as a story, I think at that point when I was working on that particular essay that that, that passage is from, I was starting to worry and maybe become even frustrated by the, um, the narrativization of this particular ongoing historical event slash trauma that it was, it seemed to be allowing itself to be used as an example, um, certainly with things that are that are going on, maybe always. I mean, it seems like once, once Japanese American incarceration became known, once it was sort of revealed as something that did in fact happen, it started to recur as an example, whether, you know, it was mentioned by the Supreme Court in dealing with certain cases, or if it was uh, mentioned in in the drawing of, of legislation, or more recently 
in talking about migrant detention and family separation and you know all these all these correspondences that are real and um incredibly painful but that this like intonation of of the experience of japanese immigrants and japanese americans during world war ii um as an example made it seem almost to me biblical in nature and i think that at that point it becomes really slippery in the sense that you can slide right off of it my 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 eyes glaze over and i and i become um i know what's going to be said and so if I know what's going to be said, I, I kind of um, tune out. Um, and this is also in relation to how I think many people in the community, for very legitimate reasons, talk about the history, people who went through it. Um, there's like a particular um, even cadence and rhythm to the kinds of terminology that's used in the way that it's remembered that it becomes almost song-like. And I think in becoming a song, you know, talking about barbed wire and guard towers and Pearl Harbor and dust storms and so on, um, in becoming a song, it also becomes a little bit slippery. And I think that, so in that moment, I was angry for other reasons when I was <laughs> writing that essay, but um, I think I was fearful, and maybe I still am fearful about the way that I was writing about it, that I was falling into the same kind of pattern that, um, it, at least in my mind, was running the risk of making the story disappear, um, making the reader just kind of like slide right off of what I was writing. So that's that. I think that's also connected to the question about memory. Um, it's yeah. Song. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I th that resonates with me a lot because I think that's something that I've been asked before too. Like, how do you write about your family? Just as a, as a very simple thing when it's not your exact history or like what ownership do you have over? I think that is also kind of wrapped up in that question. Um, but I think what's, I think what struck me about that passage is that you're kind of naming the fear and naming mm -hmm that slipperiness that you're describing um, kind of made, it, it made me trust that moment um, because of the naming. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, even, yeah. And so I think this is a continuation of that. Um, maybe the, the the sensitivity we might have to writing about or uh, like our grandfathers, for example, and and what what is their story? What is your father's story? Like retelling of that story, and then at what point does it become your story? Like, do you have a sense of that in in your life and your writing? Like, at what point does that story that of somebody else's experience become yours, or or do you allow it to become yours? I mean, similar to you, I think I have a lot of fear around it. Like I'm, and so, you know, I had to, in, in looking, like looking at the book before publication too, I was, I kept on waiting for like the fact that I got totally wrong to jump out at me. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but the thing that kind of talks me back from that ledge is, um, just remembering that the book is 
or microphones are trying to make sense of the fact that I could have gotten it wrong or I likely got it wrong and that everybody gets it wrong actually like that's the that's the sort of point mm -hmm. about memory um mm -hmm. but yeah I don't know if I have an answer to that question I don't I still you know when you're far from living on a land that you quote unquote came from like I don't I don't think you ever feel a sense of like full ownership or full or that story becoming yours, at least not to me. But mm -hmm. Yeah. Not a totally satisfying answer, but. Totally satisfying. <laughs> well, there is no satisfying answer in relation to that, these questions, I think. Um, uh, yeah. I'm seeing that there's some questions. I had a question for you about dreams and um, it seems like other folks do too um do you want to talk a little bit about dreams um, <laughs> yeah so <laughs> dot devota who is upstairs she writes or she asks um i mean she's she's currently putting our child to bed so maybe this is relevant in a different way too are our dreams oh where'd it go are our dreams owned by the dead are our dreams poetic practice? Do you fictionalize dreams? Are dreams dead serious? Um, and then Steve Fujimura adds to it, why dreams? Mm -hmm. That's that's a whole bunch of questions in one. Are there are there any dreams in your book? I don't think there are dreams. There are like dreamscapes. Like, I feel like the longer poem I read, I think of as a little bit of a dreamscape. Mm. Um, but it's not, they're not like pulled from my dreams. Um, yeah. Also, I think maybe helpful for folks. I know you read a lot of the dream sequences, but like, they're like, I was thinking about how they're, they bookend the book. Like, there's, yeah, the series of dreams in the beginning and the end. And there's also the longer, piece in the middle that is like one longer dreamscape um yeah but i i also basically have a question that steve has why why dreams and how do they function for you in the book yeah maybe i'll have to cherry pick some of these dreams questions um <laughs> because it, i mean dreams are really difficult to answer questions about uh you know um the last one of Dot's questions is, are dreams dead serious? And um, my first response to that is sort of a facetious response, which is that dreams are the dead being serious. Um, yeah, what's dead serious? That's such an incredible, what is dead serious? I love that question. Yeah, I think I've, I've talked about this a little bit before. I think um, actually when Jackie Wang's book came out, her, her night book, book book came out, which is also filled with dreams. And um, I was thinking about that book. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, We read together and we were talking a little bit about, um, well, first of all, I feel like dreams are, they're, they're dead serious in the sense that they're real. I mean, another part of the question is, do you fictionalize dreams, which I guess suggests that they start as nonfiction. 
um, there's very little difference to me between a memory and a dream um, in that they're both a creation of like a recreation of an experience. Looking back, uh, there is no difference. Um, and I feel like maybe dreams are um, the, the most, I don't, maybe I even write about this in the book, I forget, but um, like the most humane interpretation of what I often take to be uh, the cruelty of existence. Um, and not, not that dreams, not, not that we are, um, that we need to interpret our dreams, but that dreams themselves are the interpretation. Uh, I don't, yeah. Um, but then the question, why dream? <laughs> why dreams? Steve, I, I mean, what do you mean, Steve? Or what do you, what did you mean, Emily? I guess my question was, and this might be differing from what Steve is thinking about, but like I was thinking about this a lot with Jackie Wayne's book too. What does it mean to write down a dream, first of all? Like what, mm. what does it mean to take a dream, which, right, isn't in language? It's like in images. I mean, there's language in dreams, but to me, it's like, a projection or a or a landscape or um, yeah or images and then what does it mean to then translate it into language yeah I think that and so it's kind of like why write a dream down is kind of how I was thinking about that question and what does that process mean to you maybe Yeah, I think there's a there's a practical answer to that. This is like the really boring answer to that, but um, there is a way that a book is just my attempt to improve as a writer. <laughs> um, the book is both the record of that, and the book is the is like the way to improve. And I think the really boring answer to that is um, because dreams are so difficult. It's, it's so difficult, I mean, maybe ultimately impossible to translate the ineffable into language. It becomes a really great way to practice writing. Um, I, don't, I don't know, the, I don't know uh, the deeper answer to that question. Uh, and also sometimes, and I'm curious, for you about like the 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 sequence the structure of your book sometimes i don't sometimes it's very intuitive like like there could be a question about well why do things happen in this particular order um and in addition to saying that well trisha lowe at nightbo is incredible and we had many many incredible conversations about what a narrative could look like sometimes i don't know it's like you know why did you why did you like put that brushstroke on that painting in that particular place, you know, well, my arm moved in that way, I guess. And I just, and I kept it there. Um, this is kind of leaping away from that, but do you, 
did you spend a lot of time trying to figure out the order of your book and how each piece would relate to the ones before and after it? Yeah, the ordering did take me a long time <laughs> uh, to put it in short, but um, I think what I was competing with a little bit is that the book is about many things or it's like navigating many narratives and um and also like multiple poems and series and multiple forms and so just trying to um kind of weave them together in a way that it's like yeah I think to allow the reader access into the language of the book um but I think what really helped me um, other than kind of mapping the themes and the forms in the book was to think about the visual forms. So you showed one of the kind of, um, the, the poem that you showed that's like towards the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And kind of from the beginning, sort of introducing the idea of the circle or the square um, or the kind of like closed circuit early in the book in, a, in order to kind of culminate toward that, um, kind of more complex image that wraps some of the other themes in it. Um, it wraps like the idea of reversibility into it. Um, and it has, yeah, kind of like a more complex graphic structure to it. Um, but yeah, it's, I also think that at some point when you're like putting together a book, the near, the core of the book is going to be pretty much the same no matter what you move around to where. Oh, so yeah. Argue, at some point, you kind of hit a place where the arguments are going to kind of head in one direction, even if like this poem mm -hmm. or structure or this se section is moved to the beginning and, and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Ar arguments. That's... Is that how you, is that how you look at it? Like these are these are particular arguments that are gonna, that the reader is gonna be brought into. Yeah, yeah, that's how I, that's how I usually teach the poem is like, hmm. think about the argument of the poem and then think about the argument of the book. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, kind of a, a broad a broad idea of arguments. Um, I have to I have to ask about reversible poems because one thing that your book I do spend a lot of time reading notes and acknowledgments. I it's like reading liner notes in a in a record. Like you get you gain so much um, you gain so many sources by reading the liner notes. So you throughout there are various forms of reversible poetry in your book. And you also cite this book, um, Wild Geese Returning, which is a book about Chinese reversible poems. And in it, I think one of the most astonishing pieces in this is a, is a, a poem written in the fourth century by a woman named Su Hui. And um, it consists of 840 characters and allegedly could be read 12,000 different ways. Yeah. So it's not only forward and back, but in almost every configuration. Um, how did you, how did you 
encounter this tradition and what what happened to you in that encounter that inspired you to want to do it um was it was it something that uh, in particular about your life your relationship to taiwan china um your family uh melancholy and so, i mean that's many things but yeah i think it's all of the above um yeah i just had um rachel hottis was a teacher of mine in my mfa and she just like was like oh here's this book review of this book while he's returning that you might be interested in you know or i was in a translation class with her and so and i looked at it um and it just yeah it encapsulated pretty much every theme that i was working with i just like had it on the right container for it um hmm. and so um you know the kind of book the book sort of started with this image of the well um that hmm. recurs throughout the book um and which is like really central to a part of my family history my paternal family history um <laughs> the well is a circle so I was already working with this idea of like a void or what it means when you like enter the well um and personal poems also circle and they cycle um and they don't land anywhere right so it's like also the idea of melancholy or sadness um where you you can't you can't put your finger on the object that you're you're mourning right and kind of like Freud's idea of mourning and melancholy um and so i just i just wanted to try and get inside the form and i just started practicing it and seeing what it could be like in english um knowing that it's also kind of a failed project you can't really you can't emulate the form because english doesn't really allow you to reverse the way that chinese does mm -hmm. so it also became like a linguistic project which also sort of formed um, a lot of the like linguistic arguments in the book um, about like the failure to meet <laughs> um, the failure for two languages to meet, but also how productive that's like in between space can be. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of quick way of getting getting through it. But um, yeah, it was kind of like once I found it, I was like, I can't not, I can't not write this form. It's, it's doing all of this work for me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That I like I, kind of linked before. Have you, are you still, I mean, have you written reversible poems post this book? Are you still discovering new ways of doing that? I've like actually tried to, I've tried to, I've paused from it, um, but have really been thinking about what it, what would it mean if I like pulled this into another project, like what that would mean if, mm -hmm. if like this form is wedded to these ideas or if it'll proliferate outwards, you know? Um, and I haven't quite figured, figured that out yet, but yeah. Yeah, there, there's an amazing moment. So in this book, it's quoting um, an, another writer about this, this, incredible poem that was embroidered by the way right actually randomly because I, I just took it off the wall but i have a like framed copy of that poem which 
is from the book. Um, but this is like the visual representation of this reversible poem. Um, but each of these lines is character. They're all, it's a, it's a huge block of characters essentially. Yeah. And so she wrote it, she wrote it specifically for her partner who had been exiled to the border. Yeah. But there's this incredible line in the book that says um, she felt hatred and regret. Thus, she embroidered the reversible poem. I was like that because she felt hatred and regret, she embroidered a reversible poem. So then I started thinking, well, then I just noticed that like the repetition of anger and sadness in your book, like the words anger and sadness, in addition to the to the feeling um and how that at least in what i just read it kind of it like leads necessarily to reversible poetry um yeah i mean i mean the thing i'm kind of missing here is just like how emotionally rich the form is like they're yeah. they're often about exile they're often about melancholy um because of form so perfectly enacts the feeling of, you know, not being able to return, not being able to um, be with the one you miss, right? And, but yeah, it is incredible that she kind of um, wrote this out of spite <laughs> in many ways, out of anger. Um, and I know you were mentioning earlier how, writing, how writing angry. while angry. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel anger now when you like, or does it feel like a displaced anger now that it's in the book? Or, and I know you mentioned you you felt emotional reading it recently. You know, what's your relationship to like anger in the book now? Um. Well, the ang anger is renewable. I think the kind of anger that I felt um, going into that particular piece um yeah i think i think yeah maybe there's something reversible irreversible or or um infinite about certain kinds of anger especially if they're related to um violence um or trauma or you know things that were done to your community or to your people i don't know if that anger goes away but but maybe I don't know. I guess I'm trying to I'm trying to learn something about anger through reversible poetry, or spite, or hatred and and resentment and regret. I don't. Yeah, in in reading, in reading Hydra Medusa, and the places where I have a memory of maybe being really charged, being really upset. Um. And then whatever I wrote being actually a consequence of being upset, that it wouldn't have existed without me being upset. I'm not yet aware of what happens when I go back into those moments. It is like I'm looking back at a previous version of myself, but that but the emotion that I experienced that led to writing, it still exists. It's evolved into something else that maybe is um uh well, I guess I'm always trying to harness it so that I can write the next thing. I, you know, there's very, 
I'm going to say something that's not true, but it's just what came to my mind. There's, there's very little that I write that is not in some way connected to um, deep abiding frustration. Why doesn't that feel true? To why you? doesn't, why doesn't it feel true? Um, because it, I don't know. It just, that seems pretty miserable. There's it's, it, I, it, I hope it's not true, yeah. but maybe I've sort of um, wandered my way into subject matter about which I naturally feel frustrated all the time anyway. I mean, so much of Hydra Medusa is about living in Tucson, Southern Arizona. But then actually there's a part of it that the book is a, is a record of um, like finding my way out of certain kinds of um, complex situations through having a child uh the end of the book is like my daughter begins to appear and she begins to speak i mean her words are are in the end of the book and um not that having a child dispels or displaces any of the frustration you feel about life and maybe even like uh um, illuminates it in a way that becomes more interesting or useful um but there like there's new qualities i think that are added to that to anger um, which is maybe part of that evolution that I'm trying to understand. Um, and I don't know, I, I just, just on a, like a basic level, the fact that, I mean, you read that poem that has the word sorrow repeated many times and that anger and sadness do recur. Um, what, what are those emotional states? What do those mean to you in relation to your writing? Speaking of like spite, I started, I started yeah. writing all of these poems with the word sadness in them because I was just finding that people would see a poem with that, or like even, especially the phrase like my sadness, people would see a poem with that phrase in it and deem it, they'd be like, take that out. <laughs> or they, oh. were, they were, it made people uncomfortable um, or it seemed, I think, like it risks a lot of sentimentality. Like I just think people people reacting to it, um, and I I just kept on noticing that. And so instead of taking it out, I, I insisted on it. Um, mm. And I think again, kind of as like a part of my practice, just to see. So I, I kept on feeling like I wanted to put put that phrase or that word into my poems. Um, and sometimes I'd capitalize it, um, mm -hmm. but but I think over the span of poems, I was seeing how it start, sort of like starts to become an object, or it almost seems to start feeling starts to feel objective in some way, um, because it's like kind of stripped of a lot of its power. Um, and also, I think a lot of it was like really trying to get people to look at the word and kind of sit with the discomfort of that phrase or that what it what it means to make somebody read the word sadness over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think what you're saying about you know sitting in the feeling or what it means to write from a place of like negative emotion and like strong negative emotion right um 
yeah, it's like if you read the poem, sorry, what am I trying to say with this? I also have ex the experience of feeling like I was really trying to understand a time in which I had a lot of sadness. And so I felt like I needed to write about it. And now I feel kind of re slightly removed from that time. Um, and sometimes going back into the poems, I'm also struck by the like resurgence of that emotion um, in a surprising way. Um, hmm. But but then it then it's, you know, I run up against this question too of like, should I then be sad all the time when I write? Like, should I, you know, get myself to a place of emotion in order to, to write poems? Like, I also don't, I agree with you. I don't think that's what I want for myself. And I, I hope that's not true, that that's the only place that I can write from as well. But yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's funny that those are considered negative emotions. Right. I mean, especially an emotion or a state of being like sadness that does have the potential to generate a lot of creative life. That mm -hmm. seems like the, the definition of positive, something that actually proliferates. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something similar with people saying, oh, you got to take out my sadness. That's too sentimental. I mean, one, I wonder where that's coming from. Yeah. For, for them. Is that like a, a what a writer is supposed to do? Or is it that people are afraid of, or that people in fact want to indulge in that themselves, but um, because of maybe uh, feeling anxiety about that, you tell other people not to do that. Um, I feel similarly with dreams, you know, it's where it's it's another thing that people tell you to avoid writing and so i thought well i'm gonna i'm gonna write a book where the first <laughs> the first thing i say is i had a dream and um you know usually people kind of tune you out at that point like oh, okay we're gonna hear this dream it's not gonna make any sense it's very personal um cliche or whatever but now i'm and i'm gonna just gonna keep repeating it uh over and over and over I mean, I love what you were saying about that it's like a humane, there's a kind of humanity in dreams. Um, I just keep on coming back back to that. Um, and in that case, it's also productive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know it's 10, 15 out there. You're in New York. Um, can I just ask you one more question and then? I mean, there are also some questions. The oh, there are, yeah. Maybe we can. Yeah, Steve Fujimura, by the way, um, is a poet. And he published a book this year called Sad Asian Music, which is really beautiful. Um, a plug for Steve's book. Uh, I don't know. These are these are big questions. Are they are they possible to answer in the next six minutes? What is Japanese Americans' artist responsibility, if any, to memory of Hiroshima? <laughs> yeah, that's a huge question. The, the one after it. How do you connect that narrativization of internment 
um, incarceration, it's referred to as incarceration, as well as the ethical questions about history and memory and monument that run through the grave on the wall to the rich canon of literature on that period that exists and survives in Japanese America today. Would you say that your work is in conversation continuation with that canon? And if so, how? Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm writing a book now that I think is maybe a, a way to answer that question. It's a book length answer to your question, Emma. Uh, I mean, the second part of the question, would I say that my work is in conversation continuation of that canon? Um, I, I mean, I hope so. I'm in, I'm in conversation with many of the people who I, I think produce that canon as friends, as people in my community that are meaningful to me. And in many ways I write, I'm writing so that I can, so I can clarify uh, my, my thoughts that I might have in actual conversations. Like I can create, a, I can enshrine a record of things that are more difficult to say out loud. So then I write. Um, so yeah, in that sense, not necessarily a tradition, but an actual conversation. Like it's, that's really important to me that, especially if I'm writing about quote unquote, Japanese America, that it is, a, that is grounded in conversations I'm having with real people. Um, and that it becomes a record of that. I mean, that's, I don't know, that's not totally an answer to like a much deeper question, but um, have you, uh, have you shared, I mean, if, I imagine so, your book with your family and and what has their experience been or their response been? Um, sorry, I was just like trying to formulate a question for you about the archive, but I can do that for a second. Um, yeah, I mean, my dad is, loves poetry, so... Mm. Um, Chinese poetry and so he's kind of been making his way through the book um, I mean it's interesting I think um, writing a book when you're the child of immigrants whose um, relationship to English is different than yours you know um, I'm not actually sure if my mom has read it but but yeah like sometimes it you know, I've, I've walked my dad through some of my poems, like just kind of like broken it down for him and kind of talked through the arguments and he kind of tells me what he's getting from it. And so it's, mm. it's yeah, I, I, you know, thinking about what you're saying about conversation, it's very much like, it almost becomes a poem outside of itself, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not just what it is on the page. It's not just his interpretation. It's like, this. it's also my interpretation of my own work. And, um, mm. and you know, this was, he came to, uh, my parents came to my book launch in New York and my dad had read the last poem, which like, uh, one of the last poems of the book, which features this image of him, uh, or it features this memory that I have of him telling me a memory of him taking like a milk bath in the, oh, bath, yeah. in the yeah. factory that he used to work in. And he was kind of just like telling me, he like retold the story. He's somebody who also like we asked to tell the same stories over and over again. And mm -hmm. he told that same story to us at dinner, um, but kind of elaborated 
you know, about the imagery and just like the images are so different than the images that I created in the poem. Um, and so that's kind of become, you know, another part of the experience of having the book out in the world is this like, there are all these addendums I have now to these memories that are in the book. Um, and that's been, that's been cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, um, I guess part of why we're here is because, well, obviously we wrote books, but this, this book is so good. It's so invigorating. I mean, I don't, refreshing is maybe a really weird word to use, but it feels there's something maybe even like the milk bath. It's there's something very refreshing. And now thinking about a father who tells the same story over and over again, um, it's like it's a story that never ends because mm -hmm. you know when it does end, it's just going to start over again. It's really nice. Um, um, yeah. yeah, and I also love thinking of like the continuation that this this book, which is also amazing, um, is is in continuation to um, of the book that came before. And uh, I know I love the idea. Of, I love the, the idea of a two part book, but also thinking of um, the expanse that the two books are laying out. Um, do you think this is going to be the last kind of in in the desert book? Well, yeah. I mean, it's really just it's a record of living in Tucson. So yeah, the, the it's a continuation of a book called The Desert, which the Song Cave published in 2018. Um, we lived in Tucson for three years and then we left and then we came back and lived there for three more years. So, I mean, if I ever live there again, I guess um, it, it will continue. It's really interesting because there are some places where I live that don't inspire any, like nothing comes out of it. I might be writing something else, but um, in terms of living, I think in particular in like the Mexico US borderland, um, I think I, when we first moved there, I, I struggled with, with living in that kind of environment, the desert. Um, but then what was happening, and maybe this is the same thing as a negative that is, a, is it in fact a positive is that it was generating so much writing, even without me being fully conscious of it. Um, and then, then I live other places that don't produce it is negative because it produces nothing like I don't it doesn't incite my consciousness in a way that other landscapes do but also Tucson Arizona is a place where um I mean there are so many writers there there's so many amazing poets there um Dot Devoto was there I think Sofia Terrazawa was maybe somewhere in here um lived in Tucson for a while and so a lot of it is also just being inspired by friends who are doing amazing things, writing also about sim the similar landscape. Yeah, Sophia Terrazal is here. Um, another amazing writer. Uh, yeah, I think that's that. What, um, what are you working on now? Um, like slowly, I like, pre-wrote a lot during the pandemic. So I'm kind of starting to formulate that into something. I don't really know what yet, but um, I think it'll also be about landscapes, geography, um, 
been doing a lot of research on Taiwanese geography. Um, mm. So yeah, that's kind of where where it's at right now. And I feel like reading Hydromedusa has been really kind of instructive also in thinking about landscapes and um, yeah, how to kind of write across a landscape. Mm. I should mention there's one poem in here that I wrote in Tainan, Taiwan. Oh, really? Yeah, it's on page 71. Okay. We, Dot and I taught in Kaohsiung for six years, or six summers. And wow. 2000, 2011 till 2017. Um, okay. When is the last time you were in Taiwan? 2018, yeah. And where do you go? Um, I go to Taipei um, and my dad's family is from all the way in the south in Pingdong, um, tip of the island. So mm. kind of all over the place, but I've traveled the coast as well. Yeah. Yeah. Tainan is like one of my favorite cities in the world. <laughs> it's really incredible. Yeah, it's really incredible. Wow, um, I'm so glad to know that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your book is incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you for reading with me. What an what an honor. What an honor. Thank you, Peter, for having us. Yeah, thank you, Peter. For letting us stay a little late. <laughs> Such a pleasure. I mean, thanks to you both for gracing our, our virtual halls and, and, and the candidness and, and the honesty with which you both spoke about your work. I mean, it's been breathtaking and very, very touching. And, and it felt very special experiencing this, this window into your work and your process. So Emily, congratulations on a remarkable poetry debut. Brandon, uh, always auspicious to have you in our orbit and really want to thank Nightboat for continuing to produce such material of fantastic quality. Please, please keep up the good work. Yeah. I want to remind everyone, uh, please, uh, buy a book. We've posted links in the chat. Better yet, if you're in the neighborhood, come on down, browse our stacks. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We're open seven days a week. And now from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., we are slowly getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. I uh, also want to point out the City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. We're going to be featuring a special calendar of events beginning Actually, it's already begun. Uh, it's going to be running through to the end of the year. It's going to include both live in-store and online events. We're going to be featuring poetry readings, historic tours, much, much more. So keep an eye on our events calendar for that. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. We hope to see you all again soon. Brandon, Emily, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.